Thank y'all so much for worshiping. Thank you for giving to our church. And if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, uh, uh, Exodus chapter 3 is going to be our text this morning. We're going to jump right in and read verses 1 through 12 and have a really awesome uh, talk around this text and inspired from this text this morning. I hope that you're, uh, you're looking forward to hearing what God has to say to us. So Exodus 3, verse number 1, this is uh, obviously the very memorable, uh, a very well-known story of Moses meeting God on the mountain. Uh, the Bible says, Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the back of the desert, and he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. So he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. Then Moses said, I will, not turn, I will now turn aside and see this great sign, why the bush does not burn. So when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. Then he said, do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. And the Lord said, I have, sure, the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. So I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from the land to do a good and large land to a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Now behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me and I have also seen the oppression which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now, therefore, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. And Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And so he said, I will certainly be with you, and this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will serve God on this mountain. Can you imagine what it would be like to get that kind of revelation from God. Now, Moses wasn't going to church every Sunday. He wasn't even going to the temple every Saturday. There wasn't a temple. Moses was on the backside of the desert in exile. Can you imagine what it would be like to have your first revelation from God be, to have been given the, the, the kind of assignment that Moses was given? Perhaps one of the most, one of the most amazing, important assignments that anybody has ever been given? Can you imagine what it would be like to hear those words when you were, when you were the least suspecting it or prepared for it? Just imagine getting asked to do half of something as daunting as that from a normal person, much less the God of the universe. Just imagine someone, a teacher, a boss, a family member saying, hey, I got a job for you. I've got a request of you. I mean, we would be overwhelmed and speechless even if it was just a small thing that we're not prepared for, that we're not expecting. Maybe we'd even be wondering if we could do half of what we had been asked to do. Speaking of which, have you ever been asked to do something that you faced with doubt and questioned your ability? Have you ever been asked to do something that you knew you were not the right pick for it? 
you didn't feel good about your selection, you didn't ask to do it, you didn't volunteer to do it, or maybe you got too deep in to back out at that point, but you knew, hey, you're over your head, you, you, your, your ability, your skill set is not meant for that particular task. And all of us have been there before, right? We've been volunteered to do something, we've been, you know, kind of strong-armed into doing something, we've been kind of, uh, you know, stumbled our way into something that we didn't really want to do, but we felt bad about it, and, and then we ended up with an obligation on our, on, on our lap that we just did not feel like we were made for. Since we've got this back-to-school uh, theme on our minds, I, I, and, and, and our kids are recently went back to school, I can remember the first day of, of class, many classes, especially in college, when they would pass out the syllabus. And this is a kind of a, a traditional thing on the first day of class. High school kids do this. Uh, college kids, of course, are well aware of this. Um, well, on the first day of class, you're handed a syllabus. And, and I remember, you know, before the professor would ever get to the page where all the assignments were, I would remember I would flip over and I would just start reading all the stuff that I was going to be expected to do that semester. And it would just be this thinking feeling in my gut that, hey, I don't know if I'm up to this. There's research papers and presentations and group projects and reports on books and articles. And on top of that, there's tests throughout the semester. There's exams at the end of the semester. If you've been there, you know the feeling of the dread that comes over you when you attempt to digest the expectations for that year and you start processing in your head and fixating on how much time all that's going to take and how much of your life it's going to consume for the immediate future. Now, depending on what grade you're in, the pressure and dread is all relative. Middle school seems daunting to middle school kids. Uh, high school is, is overwhelming to, to teenagers trying to juggle all the new obligations they have between driving and working and those sorts of things. But again, jumping into college and beyond, it's like drinking water from a hose pipe that's turned all the way up. It's a little bit much. That first day when you go from one class to another and and, and you read those syllabuses again and again and again, over and over again, it takes some reassurance and pep talks to convince you that it's going to be possible. There were several classes, and I walked out of on that first day, and I thought to myself, I'm going to email my advisor ASAP because I'm going to try to swap this out because there's no way I can juggle four or five of these kind of classes. Maybe one of these, but I can't do all these. I can't write those many papers. I can't prepare for that many exams. I can't read that many books. It's just too much. And again, it's good that they give us that in advance. I mean, it'd be better than, hey, to wind up three weeks in and say, hey, this is going to happen. They want you to know what you're getting yourself into. My reasoning always was, I just don't have it in me to be able to do all these things that's going to be required of me. Even if I probably could, I just felt like I wasn't able to. In some of my college and seminary classes, there would be these assignments that were due at any point in the semester. And this was always completely ridiculous, but I, I, I learned to deal with it. I had these professors that would just say, hey, there's some assignments that are just due whenever you want to do them. And nobody did them until the last week of semester, which was the craziest thing that any of us could do, but we all did it. There would be these assignments, hey, you got to write these papers and read these books and do these reports, but you can just turn them in whenever you want to. And there's that one person that did them at the first of the year, right? But most people, especially in seminary, right, everybody's a pastor or in church and you're juggling 15 things at one time and you're just thinking, I'm never going to do this. Uh, this might be my own anxious brain at work, but I, I literally had this reoccurring nightmare um, where the semester is rolling along and I check the syllabus and realize I've got five assignments that are due and it's the last week of the semester and I haven't done them yet. I, this, I have that nightmare probably once a week and, and, and I also have the nightmare about coming to church and not being prepared. So I got a little bit of problems going on there if, if you can't tell. Um, but, but speaking of syllabuses or syllabi, whatever the plural is, uh, life is completely the opposite of a college class where every assignment is predated, where you have a list of all your expectations from the beginning. In real life, you don't get a syllabus, do you? 
In real life, you don't get a packet that says, hey, this is what's due this week and that week. This is what's due week one, week two, week three. This is what you're going to deal with in week four. This is what you're going to deal with, deal with at the end of the semester, at the end of the month, at the end of the year. In real life, there's no packet that you're handed at some point early on that says, hey, this is everything you need to prepare for. Uh, of course, there are things that we should assume we're going to have to deal with as we grow up and as we hit certain milestones and as we go through certain, certain phases of our uh, relationships and our, our professional lives. Uh, but but the, the, the way life works, it's unpredictable. There's twists and turns uh, that are thrown at us, good and bad. Uh, there's just no way that you're going to know what assignment, what project, what challenge, what problem you're going to have to deal with next. You know, I, I, don't, I don't know if, if I'd want to know some of the things that come at us in advance. Uh, we would psych ourselves out of it, we'd worry so much in advance, and we still wouldn't be prepared to deal with it, even if we knew that on such and such day, such and such year, we're going to face something very challenging. But that this isn't just about things that are undesirable. This isn't just about things that are heavy to deal with and hard to deal with. Some of the best things in our lives often appear unexpected. Uh, I, I, think all of us, I think all of us have, have experienced this before. Sometimes life brings opportunities to us that we've literally dreamed about out of nowhere, but we are a little bit overwhelmed because it's going to require a lot of work. We've prayed for these things. We've looked forward to these things. Uh, you know, we've, we've come to these intersections in life, these crossroads in life, and we realize, yeah, I've always wanted this opportunity. Yeah, I've always dreamed about being here, but, 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 but I don't know if I have it in me. Have you ever said those words before? Maybe you've said that facing a diagnosis or responding to a diagnosis. Maybe you've said that responding to something in your family. Maybe you've said that just in response to something that you feel like you're called to do and, and, and you really wanted to be given that opportunity, but something just dawns on you in that moment. I just don't know if I have it in me. I think all of us have said that before. Whether it was something we were asked to do or something that presented itself to us, we've all had these conversations in our head. Is there any way I could might maybe bypass this or skip this or, or get, maybe get an easier, uh, accessible alternative? You know, it could be an assignment in a class. It could be a new expectation at work. It could be something that brings a challenge to your personal life. Nobody expects to think for things to fall apart and for things to take a wrong turn. I think all of us have probably wondered if we're, or, or, or even attempted to get out from under something that was laid on our desk. But isn't it true? Sometimes your teacher that you say, hey, can I have another option? Sometimes your boss that you say, hey, I don't know if this promotion or this, this job is right for me. Sometimes life just won't take no for an answer. I remember in seminary, I tried to get out of some classes and I got, my advisor said, you're going to have to take this class eventually, so you know I'm not getting you out of it. I'm like, well, I don't really want to take it. I, you know, it's hard. I've got a lot going on right now. And eventually, I'm never going to have time to deal with it. So you get, you're going to deal with it now or you're never going to deal with it at all. That's just kind of how it is, right? We've all been there before. Maybe a boss, uh, your boss at work said, hey, this is what you got to do and you didn't really want to do it and you try to get out of it. And they say, listen, I can't take no from you. Sometimes life just says to us, You've got the ball. You've got to run it. You can't pass it to someone else. You can't drop it and go sit on the bench. You, this is your ball. It's your field. It's your moment. You've got to get the ball as close as you can to the coal or to the, to the end of the field. Now, usually if we've made it to a certain level of education, if we've made it to a particular place at work, if we've earned a particular job, if we've been given an opportunity, usually it's because we've earned that place. It's because we're capable. Uh, you know, it's because uh, we, we, are, we have it in us to do whatever we've been asked to do. We may not believe in ourselves in the moment, uh, but our ability and our capability, uh, our path to that point speaks for itself. 
Now, I know there's some fringe cases, but for the most part, you don't fake it into a high-level classroom. You don't fake it into a job with great responsibilities. You don't fake your way into a great opportunity. However, they're, they're in those high-stress, high-stakes moments. While our merit is proven and our skill set is apparent, our confidence can be lacking. And that's where the trouble comes from, isn't it? What makes many walk away from difficult tasks is not that they can't do it. It's not that they didn't really want that opportunity at some point. It's that they don't have, we don't have the confidence that we need. Again, real life is different. And by real life, I mean the things that life brings us that have nothing to do with merit, that have nothing to do with what's deserved. Life and its greatest challenges and burdens and obligations can often appear as random as a lottery. The biggest gifts come to those that are least deserving. The toughest trials come to those that seem like they've suffered enough and it's unfair. Sometimes the rich get richer. Sometimes the poor get more hardships. Sometimes the righteous suffer and sometimes the unrighteous prosper. At the end of the day, we don't get to decide what comes our way. While we can try our best to control as much as we can, ultimately so much is out of our control in life. So when something comes our to our doorstep, good or bad, ideal or horrifying, we don't usually get the choice of whether we're going to deal with it or not. Usually we've got to deal with it. But what if, just like your teacher, only asked their students what they are, what, what, what to do certain assignments because they know if you're in this class, if you've made it this far, you're capable. Just like your boss or someone who loves you only asks you to step up because they know that you can and that you've done it before. What if that's how life works too? What if there is a God who is in control that only brings to, you, brings to you something or brings you to something because he knows he's given you or he will give you whatever you need to see to it to the other side? What if life, just like your teacher only assigns things that you are capable of, of completing, just like your boss knows, hey, you're able to do this. What if God, who is all good, all knowing, and all powerful, only asks you to do something and only expects you to do something and brings you to something because he knows, he knows that he's going to give you what you need to be able to do that assignment. And what if... What if you don't lack the ability, you don't lack the skills, what you actually need more than anything is confidence. Confidence is something that's hard to define or articulate, but it's very easy to detect or express when it's not there. So the best definition I could come up with that's practical in a way that we can understand is this. Confidence is the overflow, it's the effect of our faith. That faith that is internalized, it will produce a kind of confidence. Confidence comes from a heart that is anchored in faith and that brings about a mind full of confidence. Now, if you weren't with us last week, we talked about the story of Abraham. We came to the conclusion that the God of the Bible is trustworthy on the basis of Abraham alone because Abraham was called out of nowhere, was given a, a, a journey ahead of him by God. He said, follow me. I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless the world through you. I'm going to make your name great. And lo and behold, all these years later, it's undeniable that God did those three things to Abraham and through Abraham. What made the difference in Abraham's life? He trusted God. He put his faith in God's word and he left the impossible up to God. 
Likewise, the same God came to earth in the flesh. Through Abraham's family, Jesus promised that he was going to make God known to the whole world. And his story is even more uh, of a reason to believe than Abraham's. He said, I'm going to build my church. It's going to reveal God's promise to save the world. And he also said he's going to suffer and he's going to die and be raised again. And because many, many eyewitnesses heard and saw the risen Jesus, they took their world by storm and proclaimed that he is the source of salvation. He is the promise God made to Abraham. He is the proof of the God who loves us. So by faith alone, we can be saved. By faith alone, we are made right with God. And just like Abraham, all it takes is trusting in God's plan. But here's what I know, and I think what you can agree with me on. It's easy, or it's often easier to surrender to God when the Spirit is moving and the church service is uplifting. It's easy to say, yes, I believe God did all that. Yes, I believe Jesus died for my sins. Yes, I believe he's going to take me to heaven when I die. But where so many of us still struggle, and I think you'd be honest and admit this, where so many of us still struggle, we struggle with translating that faith into action. Especially when the same God who says, trust me, brings us to a season or a scenario that we feel unprepared for, that we feel inept in. But just like faith begins with transferring our weight off of ourselves onto God, confidence, as in putting legs on our faith, putting our faith to work, confidence begins when we translate our faith into action. Confidence, contrary to what many secular motivational uh, uh, ideas will, will teach, confidence is not found in believing in yourself. Confidence comes from having trusted in God, choosing to stand firm in who he is, what he's enabled us to do, and what he's made us for. And that sets up our story today perfectly. If there was ever anyone who struggled with confidence, who struggled believing he was able to do anything more than fail, it was Moses. You all know the story. Moses was a part of the Hebrew people. They were slaves in Egypt. They were, eventually, they were initially friends and guests of honor, but they became more than the Egyptians. So Pharaoh's armies enslaved them. And after a while, they began to be even more. The slave uh, population grew and grew. So Pharaoh came up with a nefarious, heartless, ruthless plan. In his paranoia, he uh, came up with a population control plan. So babies were being aborted. Toddlers were being ripped from their parents' arms and thrown into the Nile. So Moses' mom had a plan. One of the Hebrew ladies, she took her baby and placed him in a basket and sailed him down the Nile in hopes to spare his life. So when they came and said, where is your baby? They assumed that she had took care of, them for, took care of him for them. But no, she put him in a basket and he sailed down the Nile in disguise and Pharaoh's daughter found him and had mercy on him as it was God's plan. Eventually, Moses became the prince of Egypt. He knew he was different though. He knew he looked different than his adoption, the adopted Egyptian family. He saw the Hebrew slaves and he knew that he was one of them. And he knew that he was put in that place for them. So one day it dawned on him that he had to do something. He had to take action, but he didn't know what to do. And as he was overseeing the abuse of the Hebrews, he couldn't take it anymore. He attempted to stop one of his own guards and ended up killing the man instead. Moses, for fear of his life and future, fled into the desert. 
It was a camp on the outskirts of Egypt. He spent the next 40 years of his life. And all he could ever think about was what he could have done better, how he could have used his position to save his people. Alas, he would never get that chance. All the while, 40 years did a number on Moses' persona. He was a shell of his former self. He was no longer a leader. He was no longer a prince. He, was, uh, he stumbled in his words. He was weak in his knees. He was insecure. He was constantly criticizing and comparing himself and doubting himself and questioning himself. He struggled with deep mental health and depressive issues. He was not the man you would look for to lead any kind of movement, much less do anything for his own well-being or his own betterment but I want you to think about that it was that Moses that God chose to reveal himself and roll out his redemption plan to save the Hebrews it wasn't to Moses the prince of Egypt who was in line to be Pharaoh one day it wasn't Moses the young bold royal son that God made himself known to and recruited for this great rescue plan it was to Moses the humbled and broken aging shepherd that God revealed himself God revealed himself not to Moses the the promised son of Egypt not to Moses the prince he revealed himself to Moses the failure he revealed himself to Moses the has-been and that's why I think this is the perfect story to talk about confidence, how, how to find it and what it is and what it isn't. Because we see Moses at his lowest, being raised up, called and sent by God to do the greatest work that any man had ever done and, and, and unrivaled by most things ever since. Now, here's the thing about this story. God expected Moses to make excuses. God knew in advance that Moses, he, he kind of, he, he, he begins to make an excuse. Who am I? But that's not, you think, well, that's just him being humble. God knew Moses was going to make more and more excuses because God knew how low Moses was. God knew that Moses was very down and very discouraged. He knew that his initial response was really just the beginning of an onslaught of excuses and efforts to get out from under this calling. So what God says to him after he, his initial excuse is really preemptive because he knows what he's going to say even in the future. And what God says to him doesn't really dawn on Moses and register with Moses until many years later. Now, before we look at what God says to him right after this, I want to go ahead and look over at chapter 4 and read some of the excuses that Moses makes as he's trying to get out of this calling. He's trying to get out of this, this obligation. He says in chapter 4, verse number 1, Moses answered and said, but suppose they will not believe me or listen to my voice. Suppose they say, the Lord has not appeared to you. Then down, down in verse 10, he says, oh Lord, I am not eloquent, neither before nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow to speech and slow of tongue. Then in verse 13, he just says, oh Lord, please send someone else. Send by the hand of whomever else you may send. So Moses has three excuses. They won't believe me. I mean, look at me, God. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a broken, aging shepherd. Nobody's going to believe me. I, I'm not able to do this, God. I am not able to do this, God. Look at me. I'm not mentally or physically able to do this job. And finally, he just says, God, I'm not really interested in doing this. I don't want to do this. So he tried. He tried his best. God, I don't want to do this. I'm not able to do this. No one's going to believe me. And I'm really not the guy for this, God. So God was prepared for Moses to give him all those reasons as to why he wasn't going to be up to the task. Even that he outright didn't want to do it. Yet God was, had made a decision. God had chosen Moses. 
So God gives Moses the secret to finding strength and the passion for a greater sense of calling. God gives Moses what he needs to be confident before he starts making all these excuses that we went ahead and read. Now, obviously, I, I don't think what God is going to say to him really registers. Again, I don't think he really hears this like we hear it now. Because this was all brand new to him. So we'll give him some slack. But God essentially repeats this again and again and again to Moses. Because Moses is trying to quit well into his time as Israel's leader. You can read 40 years worth of wandering through the desert. And Moses, every once in a while, says to God, I don't want to do this, God. Remember how I told you when you showed up to me on the backside of the desert? I don't want to do this. You said that was holy ground. It, God, it wasn't holy ground. It was dirt. It was sand. It was nowhere, nowheresville. God, you know that I'm not the guy for this. And God, again and again, said, Moses, you're my guy. I love you. I've chosen you. I've got great plans for you. You are my man. Nobody else can do this job but you. Isn't that amazing how we argue with God and how we question God and doubt God? And we do it by nature, right? That's just because we don't see in ourselves what God often sees and what God often wants to do. So I want to read back in chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. This is what God says after Moses initially says, I got, God, I, I'm not the guy. Who am I, God? I can't do this. So verse 13, Moses begins to, again, he begins to start trying to weasel his way out of this. He begins to start poking holes in God's plan. He says, God, indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and they say, and I say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say, what is his name? What shall I say to them? Now, Moses is being kind of smart here, kind of witty. He thinks he's going to play a trick. Because the God of Abraham, people just called him God. He didn't, have a, he didn't have a real name. Because the Egyptian god, his, the, the, the Egyptian gods worshipped, they had a pantheon of gods. They worshipped Ra, the god of the sun. They worshipped the, the god of the underworld. They had all these different gods, these different names. And the, and the Hebrew god was just this, not to, 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 be, to be mean, but it was just this generic name. That's just God. We, we worship God. We don't know his name. So Moses is thinking, hey, nobody's going to believe me when I go and say to them, the god of your ancestors showed it to me. Because where's he been the last 400 years? Nobody saw him, nobody's heard from him. He, we've been praying for 400 years and we've only gotten more and more in trouble. So Moses says, God, you know, I know I'm talking to you right now and I know I'm kind of crazy to say I don't believe in you because you're talking to me. But God, nobody's going to believe me and nobody's going to believe you because nobody even knows your name. And that really just sets up the, one of the most amazing conversations that we could ever read in the scriptures. And God says to Moses, and I don't know if the clouds got thund I don't know if the clouds started thundering and, and roaring. I don't, I don't know what kind of moment this was, but in retrospect, it was a big, big, big moment. God says, "I am who I am." Now, maybe your Bibles have those words capitalized. Maybe there's like a great prominence given to that phrase. But literally, "I am who I am" is just two sounds in the Hebrew. As in, they're not really fully formed words. They're just, just sounds that come out of your mouth when you're saying um or but. You know, you're trying to talk, but these are words, these are sounds that nobody ever thought were significant at all. So God says, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent you. 
Moreover, God said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, He has sent you. This is my name forever and is a memorial to all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, appeared to me, saying, I have surely visited you and seen what is done to you in Egypt. And I have said I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, and all those other tribes to a land flowing with milk and honey. They will heed your voice, and you shall come, and you and the elders of Israel, to the king of Egypt, and you shall say, The God of the Lord, the Lord God of the Hebrews, has met with us, and now please let us go three days' journey into the wilderness. Now, I, the polite approach didn't work, spoiler alert. So it was a little bit, a little bit more than please, but God is trying to get him to sign up for this. God reveals himself to Moses as I am who I am. But again, these are just two Hebrew sounds. Yahweh. Years ago, before we really understood how Hebrew vowels and consonants worked, people would turn the, J, the Y's into J's and the V's, W's into V's. And this is where the name Jehovah comes from. They kind of put in some vowels that make it sound better. Um, regardless, if you say Yahweh or Jehovah, this is the name revealed to Moses. But again, those names sound big and royal and regal to us, but really they're just breath. They're just sounds. But those sounds mean something spectacular. Yahweh literally means I am or I always will be. This would be God's covenant name, punctuating his commitment to his people and his promises. He is the self-sufficient almighty creator who has chosen to make himself known to this rebel species. He's the God who lets his actions do the talking, who proves his love through his power and through his actions. God is and always will be. He owes us nothing. He no, owes no one nothing. He, he is the, the self-existent one. He is supreme, uncreated, absolutely sovereign, the God of the universe. All things owe their being to him. I am who I am. And here's what Moses didn't know and what Moses didn't get to see. I am became a man. A few th a thousand or so years later. Jesus was I am made flesh. He is I am in the flesh. Colossians chapter 1 says he is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created. This is Jesus who he's talking about. In heaven and on earth visible and invisible. So who is I am? What is he like? Jesus is the full expression. All things were created through him and for him including you. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And that includes he holds you together. He holds you in his hand. And this is what God is telling Moses, inviting Moses to understand. Lean into the power and find true calling and true strength in I am. So no matter... No matter how you feel about yourself, if you feel able or not, if God is inviting you and God is calling you, if God calls you and says, I've got great things for you to do, or just the basic Christian life you've been called to do, whether it's overcoming addiction, overcoming an obstacle, obeying the commandments of God, doing what you should do as a man, as a woman, as someone given your position in life, whether it's the simple things of a Christian life, when you think you are not able, when you think you are insufficient and and you are weak and you are failing 
calling and you've done so many things that prove that you're unable to do what you've been called to do, the name of God reminds you, no matter who we are, what we are, how we are, I am still is. When we are almost, I am is almighty. When we can't, I am can. When we aren't, I am is. Our takeaway from I am should be first and foremost what we are not and who he is. So I'm not giving you a a pep talk and I'm not trying to give you self-motivation skills and tools. That's not my game. This is where we find true confidence. Confidence is not found in ourselves. Confidence is not and will never be associated with arrogance. Confidence is not arrogance. Our confidence will be rooted in humility and surrender to I am. And here's the secret about Moses. Moses, the lowly, depressed shell of his former self, Moses didn't, never became an arrogant, bold, brash man. He didn't need to be. The Bible says in Numbers chapter 12 that Moses was very meek, more than all the people who were on the face of the earth. And you might say, well, what kind of leader is that? I wouldn't vote for him. I wouldn't rally behind him. He wouldn't get me excited about crossing a a water that's going to drown. He wouldn't make me fearless. But Moses didn't care about what people of the world thought. Because Moses leaned into I am. This humble man was used to do mighty things. And this is what Joshua tells us about Moses after he died. There has not risen a prophet since Israel in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror, as in he terrorized the rest of the world who were trying to defy the living God. He put them in their place. Nobody saw had ever witnessed a man or the power through a man like they did from Moses. The point is, Moses' meekness gave him exclusive access to the power of God, and the people witnessed that power through him as a result. All because Moses leaned into and trusted in the power of I am. He realized that God was giving him this opportunity to lay down his plans and his dreams and his own understanding and understand that he was capable of much more. And through this exchange of trusting in God and finding his confidence in I am, he became the man we remember him to be. Again, let me, let me say this. Moses would continue to struggle. He would constantly struggle with weaknesses. Whether they were mental weaknesses or physical weaknesses, shortcomings in every category, Moses had a lot. Knowing I am doesn't erase those things. It offers us a way to bring those excuses and bring those weaknesses and bring those doubts under the power of I am. Turn with me, if you will. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9 and 10. If these are not verses that you've got highlighted and starred in your Bible, they should be. That's why I want want you to see them in your Bibles today. This is God's message in 2 Corinthians when the Apostle Paul talks about how he found confidence in spite of his weaknesses. Even though he, he dreamed of a life where he did not have those weaknesses, where he did not have those shortcomings, he realized and God, Jesus literally tells him in chapter 12, verse 9, my grace 
is sufficient for you. My grace is enough for you. My strength is made perfect, or as in my strength is poured out when you are weak. So Paul says, I will gladly boast in my infirmities, in my weaknesses, in my shortcomings, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. We don't know what Paul's weaknesses were. I couldn't tell you. I couldn't spend the next 20 minutes and tell you, tell you every one of Moses' weaknesses. There were personal battles. There were mental battles. There were spiritual battles. There were physical battles and weaknesses. But, but the point of this is our weaknesses and our excuses and our shortcomings and the things that we feel insufficient in, those are meant to encourage us and remind us that we can become and find confidence through him in spite of those things. In the kingdom of God, you are not disqualified or you are not cast out because of those points of shame or those weaknesses or those things that you use as excuses or you think are real excuses that should dismiss you from that situation. Those things are entry points, access points into the power of God. They're not exit ramps, they're entry gates to God's power. But you got to know this, the power of I am, whether in you or on you or through you, is only realized when his grace becomes sufficient for you, when he becomes sufficient for you. When we rely on God and his power and his grace more than we rely on anything else, and the only thing that brings that about is our becoming keenly aware and acquainted with our weaknesses. God took Moses to the backside of the desert for 40 years and made him well aware of who he was and who he wasn't. And that's the man that God decided he was gonna change the world through. Not a prince, not a king, not some prophet that had had a great ministry, but through the man who had been humbled and broken and given up on. And it was in his weakness that he came to find the strength of God. And that's what verse 10 tells us. Therefore, I take pleasure in my infirmities and reproaches and needs and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong because it's the power of I am that makes us strong. Not our own. So I don't know what excuses you've made for why you haven't done what God's told you to do or address what God's told you to address or tend to what God's told you to tend to. It could be something very small, something very minor, something very grand and very spectacular. Whatever excuses you make, whatever reasons you make and you feel insufficient or less than or calls you to doubt should help us all confess without any shame, I am not able, but he is. I am not able on my own, but With I am, I am strong and called and chosen and able to do great things. I am not in control. I am not able. I am not God. But I know who is. Can we say that together? One line at a time. I am not in control. I am not able. I am not God. But I know who is. I am not but I know I am. God's telling Moses, I am in control. I am able. I am God. Again, this is not to discourage us, but rather empower and embolden us. When we can't, remember I am. When we fall, remember I am. I am is enough. I am is love. I am is the God of the universe that chooses people like us to do his work through. 
I know we often, we often look back at the stories in the Bible where God does these miracles without anybody involved, and we think, wow, that's what I want to see. But what is a greater miracle? That or God choosing a broken man like Moses? God choosing an aging man like Abraham. God choosing a shepherd boy like David. God choosing the weeping prophets like Jeremiah or Ezekiel. God choosing these people that nobody ever expected anything out of who had made excuses after excuses on their own. Yet God comes to them and empowers them. They could not, but they met I am who could. When we think to ourselves, I can't and I don't and I won't, God says to us, I am. There are no excuses. There are no excuses when our God is I am. Now, we don't know if the Hebrews had forgotten about I am. We don't know if they had never heard this, heard this name before. But Moses introduces Israel to I am who I am. I am that I am. You want to know who our God is? He is the God who is able. That's who. So Moses got up every day for the rest of his life and he knew, I am not, but I know who is. He said those words, he prayed that prayer. So what's, what's stopping us from following that same path and praying that same prayer? What's stopping us from, from getting up every single day and saying, God, if you are still I am, I want to experience you today. What you used to run away from, you can now run towards. What you used to see as disqualifiers and as uh, in a bit, it, it, things that would, would intimidate you and turn you away, what used to be a shut door is now an open door. Come on, Moses, Moses had, had to prove this to him, had to have this proven to him through all these signs and wonders, but we have such more proof. We have such a greater reason to believe in this God, this I am. Because we have the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. He took your excuses. He took your weaknesses. He took your failures. And he died under their weight. The scars on Jesus are your scars. The holes in his hands are the holes in our lives. The things in our lives that are not as they should be and never will be. That's the God that we serve who died on the cross and he rose again and Jesus says to you and he says to me I am the resurrection and when they heard those words they knew what he was referring to I am who I am I am the resurrection and the life whoever believes in me though he die though he fall short though he fail he will live yet again so we have no reason to be afraid or worry or doubt if I am is in control. And if I am has called us to something greater, we should run after whatever he leads and wherever he leads. I am provides, I am sustains, I am reigns. In him, we can be confident because we are loved and chosen and called and empowered and sent. Can you imagine the God of the universe reveals himself to Moses as I am the all-sufficient, I don't need anybody, God, but I want you. Does that register with you? I don't need nobody to do what I need to do. But Moses, I've been thinking, I want to walk into Pharaoh's palace. I, 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 want, I want you. 80-year-old, nobody, shepherd, has-been, murderer, Everybody thinks you're, you've, you've, you've seen your best days, Moses. I know what you've got going on in your heart and your mind. You are my guy. Chin up. 
It's going to take some confidence. And you're the man that's going to lead my people out of Egypt. In him, we can be confident and bold because he loves us, he cho- has chosen us, he has called us, and he sends us. So maybe, maybe it's time we quit making excuses. I don't know what area of your life you've not stepped up to. It could be something in your personal life. It could be something at home. It could be a greater calling that God wants to do something through you that you could never even, you never imagine, but he's been pushing it on you. I don't know what kind of obedience God has been calling you to do, but you've been putting off. It could be in the mirror. It could be to your wife. It could be to your husband. It could be to your family. It could be to somebody in this church. God has called you to do something for the sake of his glory and for the sake of his kingdom. And you have been making excuses. And at the root of those excuses is you just aren't confident but you're never gonna find that confidence in yourself. But thankfully, I am says, you're weak, you're scared, you're overwhelmed, you can find power and strength in me. Trust me, lean into me. I am who I am. I am not able, but I know who is. You can too. He invites you to come to him today. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the invitation that Moses received. The same invitation that Moses received, you've invited us with. Now, Lord, you might not be going to use us to lead your people out of, a, out of the, uh, the, the slavery and into the promised land. It, it may be something much less significant than that on the surface. It could be something so much bigger than that, though. We don't know. And Lord, everybody here has made excuses. We've looked at our families. We've looked at ourselves. We've looked at our churches. And we've said, I just can't do that. It's too big of a job for me. At the end of the day, the reason is we have not stepped into the confidence and the boldness and the power that comes from I am. This is not, hey, believe in yourself. This is believe in the God of the universe who says, I will hold you up. I will fill you with my power and I will use you to do what you never thought you were able to do. And no, you are not able, but I am is. So God, if there's anybody in the house today that needs to be restored through the power of I am and they want to put their faith in him and lean on him and they want to see his power work in their life for the sake of their own calling, for the sake of their families, for the sake of this church, for the sake of some great work in the kingdom that you've given them, whatever it is, God, would you show them that no, they might not be able and yes, they may be weak, but in you and through I am, they can be strong. We trust that you will do what you promise always. Would you begin with us? In Jesus' name, amen.